If you're a pastor or church leader, I'm sure at times it can feel overwhelming to see the amount of people in your congregation who are walking through pain and crisis right now. I wish it weren't true, but the common denominator of life is pain. And as a pastor myself, I know firsthand that another unfortunate common denominator is that pain tends to derail people in your congregation from moving with you on mission and purpose. The enemy's tactics have always been to neutralize our God-given purpose within the local church, and he frequently uses tragedy and trauma to do it. If you're like most pastors, you probably feel like you don't have the resources, staffing, bandwidth, or curriculum to address all the pain points in your church, which is why we want to bring the Pain to Purpose course to your local congregation. We developed this course as a pathway to come alongside you, help people heal inside the context of their own spiritual community, and release them back on mission within your local church. When my late wife Amanda was murdered in 2015, I wish someone had laid out a pathway that was this clear to help me and the members of our congregation move from pain to purpose. After tens of thousands of dollars spent on counseling for me and my staff, hundreds of hours of interviewing others who have walked through pain on this podcast, and dozens of hours of reading and researching everything I could get my hands on, we've finally created that pathway. And we'd love to come alongside you to bring it to your congregation in a way that's extremely affordable. If you're interested in finding out more about the Pain to Purpose course, head over to mypaintopurposeplan.com slash churches. I truly believe and have witnessed it firsthand that what the enemy means for evil, God wants to use to catalyze a renewed and even stronger sense of purpose within the members of your congregation. So again, if you'd like us to partner with you to make that happen, head over to mypaintopurposeplan.com slash churches. That's mypaintopurposeplan.com slash churches. Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host and joining me, Aubrey, our co-host. Aubrey, great to hello, see you. Hello, hello. Good to see you too. Glad to be back. This is the third week of the addiction series. This has been a wonderful series. We've got an interview Tremendous with Alan Cawthron that we're yeah. going to feature today. And uh, Alan's a, a friend of ours from New Spring. He's actually helping us right now to assemble some groups on our community groups platform that can help people that. in addiction. Very cool. And um, they've got a lot of people that have gone through recovery curriculum and courses and, and stuff that, that they, in the, out of their ministry at New Spring. And so this is going to be uh, one, just ins very insightful, but also know that this isn't coming from, this is coming from a practitioner. This is coming from someone yeah. who has not just found recovery himself, but is also helping so many other people uh, walk through recovery. It, it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, I'm excited to hear from him. It's a great interview. You know, one of the things that we've kind of been seeing as threads in these conversations is that it seems like addiction results from two main uh, categories or two main buckets. One, there's some kind of a traumatic thing that happens in your life, some kind of a tragedy, and it and it actually becomes the catalyst for addiction. Right. Or you have like just this this propensity, like this uh, kind of ravenous desire for whatever this thing is that you, and it it's feels very almost biological that you're drawn to this thing uh, for no apparent reason. 
And, and, and what we're finding is that people are kind of uncovering and unraveling even within that, that there's some deep hidden pain that they're using to cope with that. Right. But you know, it's, it, it can cause, especially if it is a result of trauma, it can cause kind of this, this spiraling effect because of triggers. And we hear often someone relapsing or someone, you know, going into, um, that addiction again, after having been sober or recovered for a couple of years. And it's just a, it's an interesting topic to think about this idea of, you know, how, how these things kind of get revisited over and over and over. Um, It's interesting. I had heard an addict friend of mine say that, um, for him, the, um, like falling back into the addiction or or sliding back or whatever language he would use was part of the recovery. Like almost that that needed to happen in a sense, which I don't know if that's healthy or not healthy, but that was, um, he had said that was an experience for him and for a lot of other addicts was you get sober for a while and then you take some steps back and then you, and that's part of the process. But I do think it's interesting, the kind of, uh, revisiting things that you struggle with. Um, I, I have a spiritual director that I meet with once a month and she talks about how life is like a, like the end of a spiral notebook, you know, yeah, that spiral. Yeah. And, and we can get frustrated that we're going back to the same things on that spiral. Like right. you think, no, I, I should be beyond this. God has healed me or yeah. I've made the decision. <laughs> I, I've done the 180. Like I no longer should battle this anymore. Yeah. But what she kind of offers is perhaps you are returning to that thing in your life, but you're not the same person because you're not on the same place in the spiral. Like perhaps you've grown deeper in your intimacy with God, or perhaps you know yourself in a way you didn't before because you've been through this struggle before, or perhaps you're just a different person because you're in a different season of life. So there is some, I think, encouragement that you don't have to feel so self-defeated because you're dealing with the same thing again, because you're in a different place in your relationship with the Lord and with yourself on that journey. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, isn't that like, isn't that all of our experience? You know, obviously it's way more obvious in the life of someone who is struggling with an addiction, right? Because there's this, this, this gravitational pull, this desire that's like drawing you in. But, but this really, you know, uh, on varying degrees, this is all of our experience. Every one of us has those things that we struggle with repeatedly. And we can get so frustrated. Like you said, man, I should have been beyond this. I should have moved past this. I don't understand. Why does this keep circulating back around? And it's very interesting when you overlay it to what you just said earlier about how that's a part of the recovery process, even relapsing and falling into those things. And I wonder if that's because you have to face a test in order to see if you've progressed. Mm. Right. Like you, like you have to kind of come up against that thing that in in an addiction's life, you know, addicted uh, person's life, that thing that is drawing you in, you've kind of got to face that and, and, um, and overcome it or say no, or turn it down. um, Or obviously succumb to it again to, to see how far you have come in the process of recovery, you know? And I, I just, you know, we go back to scripture and scripture talks about, how, you know, in Deuteronomy, it, it says that God tested the people of Israel. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that we misunderstand that testing sometimes. Like, it sounds like, man, why would God test us? That right. doesn't sound like the, that doesn't sound like a kind, loving, you know, slow to anger, abounding in love God yeah. that, we, that we know or that we want to follow. Right. But what it is, is it's this, uh, instead of a testing, like I heard somebody say this the other day, instead of a testing like we think of it, 
in Western culture as a pass or fail. Oh, you mm. failed. Now you're going to receive punishment or you're going to receive. No, no, no. Instead of that, yeah. it's a testing that shows us the progress that we have made. That's good. That's the, that's the Eastern uh, understanding of testing. Of what a test is. Yeah. And so yeah. perhaps the, you know, the enemy is bringing some temptations right. into your life. Right. But God wants to use those as tests to build you yeah. like upward in that spiral that you're talking yeah. about, becoming yeah. more like the person of Jesus, becoming stronger in your convictions, in your will, and in, in the Holy Spirit inside of you, the ability to turn down those things that once drew you in, to say no to the things that you once said yes to. I like thinking about that kind of reframing that conversation because I do think you can feel a whole lot of shame and self-deprecation if you like fail the test, yeah. right? But think about the test. This is language that I use a lot, but uh, as an invitation from God, like perhaps God right. wants to show you what he has done for you in the past yeah. or or like you said, where you are now compared to where you were two years ago. Yeah. and. Um, that all of it is part of our spiritual formation journey. I think that's a great way to think about some of these chronic struggles that we yeah. face. Well, I mean, that's what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, he, he has led you all this way in the wilderness to test your heart, right? To mm. see where your heart is. God doesn't need to see where our heart is. He yeah. knows where our heart is. Yeah. The more important thing is for us to see where our heart is. Yeah. For us to see how far we've progressed because yeah. we may not be where we want to be, but in Christ, we're not where we used to be either. That's right. And sometimes we gotta we gotta look back and go, oh wait, God's brought me a long ways. Like yeah. that that kind of encouragement is motivating. There's momentum. It's like, you know what? He's gonna keep bringing me. He's gonna keep bringing yeah. me. And so yeah. you're right to not get discouraged, um, but but to be to be encouraged by the fact that God has brought you up that spiral. The the alternate of that is like. You know, if you come across this test and you continue to use the cope, coping mechanisms rather than uh, stepping into the invitation that God has for you, yeah. it can become a spiral downward. A downward spiral, right? Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. And at and at that point, I mean, I think the only hope is is like we've talked about before in this series is to step out of isolation, tell yeah. somebody that you're struggling, and begin to do the work in community to find healing. Right. Right. I am super excited about this interview with Alan uh, because he talks about a lot of these themes and especially just talking about community. One of the things that I love about Alan's story is that he found his in AA yeah. and Alan is going to talk more about his experience with AA and the community that he found there in this interview. So let's go ahead and take a listen. Alan, so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, man, we are uh, in the middle of this uh, addiction series, and I reached out to a friend of mine, Chris Dew, mutual friend of ours. Yeah. And I said, Chris, I need you to tell me the best story that you have ever heard when it comes to addiction <laughs> recovery. First name on the list. You know who he gave me? He gave me Alan Cothran. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Sam Gibson, and he declines. So yeah. You've got me. <laughs> oh, man. No, so so great to have you, and I just really appreciate you spending the time doing this. I want, I'm want i so excited to dive into your story and get into all the kind of the weeds of it and what God has done through it. But first, before we kind of go back into the past and, and you uh, regale us on it, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you and your family current day, what you're yeah. doing 
where where you're at and and what what you do for a living. Yeah, name is Alan Cothran. I'm a pastor at New Spring Church. I work out of our Anderson campus as the associate campus pastor. Um, married to Jill, uh, she's amazing. We will be celebrating 19 years of marriage in uh, a month. That's so, awesome! Congratulations. Uh, yeah, absolutely blessed. She's a rock star. I love her a lot. Um, she was literally the homecoming queen. Uh, in high school, we were best friends then. She came to Furman, a big dog senior, asked her out after I had told her I was going to let her kind of make her own way. And a week later, we were together because I saw I saw that I was going to miss out on that. Um, and so uh, we started dating her freshman year, my sophomore year, got married right after she graduated. Um, have three little boys, uh, Eddie, Charlie, Wyatt. They are 12, 10, and 8. It is never dull at my home. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> yep, and we... We uh, usually have an extra child under our roof for any number of reasons, which is a blessing. Um, my wife keeps adding animals, so we basically have a hobby farm at this point. There, nice. there is a donkey, there are goats, there are many, many chickens involved. Um, two pony-sized dogs that kind of protect <laughs> it all, and we love it. It's good. Uh, great parents and a, a, an amazing sister who live in Tennessee. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the gist of the people that I'm most closely connected to. Um, and life is really good today. I love what I get to do, uh, professionally, really love Jill, um, love being a father to boys. It's Mm. kind of my wheelhouse. Um, I sort of turn into a different person, um, when I walk through the doors of my home, I'm pretty Mm. businesslike at work, but when I, when I get home, it is, wrestling and riding and and kind of acting a fool and i love it so <laughs> oh man we were just talking about before we got on the air about that you know drive time from work to home and how you're using that to kind of disengage from work and i'm kind of jealous of you to be honest with you i feel like i'm business my kids are always like daddy you're always working i feel like i'm <laughs> i try to turn it into something spiritual like well it's kind of like your heavenly father's always working even when you don't see it <laughs> they're like nice. hey, you're just a workaholic you just need to stop right now <laughs> yeah i've, but I've I, been blessed uh, through this uh covid thing to yeah to be able to continue to come to the office and a couple of us have, have kept some hours here, even with the offices being officially mm-hmm. closed. And it's been good for me to, to keep great. getting some things done here. So that's great, man. Did you ever think that you would uh, be in ministry? You go in, you know, high school uh, and college? I, I Is that didn't something you in college? No. Okay. Um, I, I was sort of, um, I was brought up to see, the father and husband is the provider. That was the way my mom stayed at home, basically from the time I was born on. Um, she was a teacher before that, but she stayed home with us all the way through. And um, in my mind, there was no way to do ministry and provide for my family the mm-hmm. way I sort of had set up an expectation, which is ironic because I had no idea what providing for a family looked yeah. like. But in, in my mind, you couldn't do both of those things. They were sort of mutually exclusive. And so I graduated from Furman and uh, went into the business world, uh, wanted to do financial planning, you know, kind of at a high level. I enjoy the analytics of that. And um, so did insurance and financial planning to start off with um, and then got a call at 24. We had just gotten involved at New Spring um, from the pastor. And he said, you want to go to lunch? And I said, yeah. And he said, I want you to come be the discipleship pastor. And so that Mm -hmm. was uh, that was 16 years, but a, a completely different life ago for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you just mentioned that a completely different life ago because there's been a lot that has happened in those 16 years, particularly yeah. personally in your own life. 
So I'd love for you to take us back and kind of share your journey, um, particularly surrounding, you know, the, the addiction that ended up overtaking your life and the recovery process from that. Just kind of take us to the beginning. Yeah. So, so the beginning is a strange one. Um, I, at 12 years old, have this vivid recollection of getting something like the flu, you know, a cold, strep throat, the flu, and uh, being given um, codeine cough syrup. And I can remember the taste and the look of the bottle on the nightstand. Like it, mm. it was just this marking experience in my life, um, which is not typically a child's experience with medicine. They right. might remember it being nasty right. or whatever, but I remember taking it and thinking, oh my gosh, this is what I was supposed to feel like from the very beginning. Mm. And so um, when I look back over my uh, my encounters with substances, that at a very, very young age, before I even knew what drug abuse was, was kind of a, a formative moment um, but that didn't really spawn anything throughout high school and college. I wasn't one to, to party. Uh, I was a very straight laced kid through high school and, and at Furman, I, I won the awards for character that were given out, uh, at school, uh, was the most likely to succeed guy, not the guy that, you know, everybody wanted to hang out with mm. on the weekends. So, <laughs> um, you know, I had had lots and lots of things for a young, I had a lot of migraine headaches as a kid and that was pre-opiate epidemic. And so mm -hmm. I was given narcotic painkillers for that and always remember thinking this is amazing, but it never really crossed my mind to abuse them. Um, but my junior year at Furman, my childhood best friend died of cancer. And mm -hmm. um, that is the moment that I remember having this emotional pain and thinking, well, I can treat that pain with this mm. medication that's wow. designed to treat physical pain. And so that's the first time that I remember um, looking to treat a feeling with a substance. Um, and honestly, it did not, it's not one of those things that spiraled the way you hear of people's addiction stories spiraling. Um, I would say it kind of, it, it drifted when I had, uh, opiates, I would take them when I didn't, I wouldn't. Um, but then at 23, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer, um, and had two really, well, had two surgeries, the second of which was really a big surgery. Um, and so all of the sudden desire to stay on this medication met the opportunity to do that. Mm. And so, um, I kind of reconciled in my mind that, well, I can go through life and continue to take this stuff every three to four hours and justify doing it, um, work a job, be a husband and be high, frankly, all mm. the time. And, um, so that was kind of what I thought I would do. Uh, I was just gonna, um, continue to, to take the painkillers, live a normal life and, and have my cake and eat it too, so to speak. Um, mm. but it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so, yeah. um, I think that probably a year after the cancer diagnosis is when I received that phone call at New Spring and I was balancing things really well and honestly didn't didn't see like a major sin issue developing at that time. But I think that subconsciously I knew that I had a problem with this mm. pill. Um, and so the idea of being uh, on staff at a church for me was a way to run away from that problem. 
But one of the little phrases I was taught earlier on in recovery is that wherever I go, there I am. And so um, I took the job with the church, went there, uh, but I took my problems with me. Um, And they didn't impact me or the church very much at the beginning. I was, uh, you know, I was pretty well educated. I was a pretty good decision maker. I had some leadership ability. And so I had some success early on at the church, Um, was leading some people. My teams were doing well. Um, and so things went fairly well, but it was about, I was 25. I'd been on church staff for probably a year and a half and we had gotten pregnant and we hadn't known if we were going to be able to get pregnant Hmm. because of the two surgeries. And so I was just over the moon excited. Hmm. Uh, I've always identified as a father. I've always enjoyed children. You know, I talk about kind of switching over personalities when I walk in the doors of my home. Um, it's just fun. I just have fun. Uh, playing football and pushing kids on the swing and doing stupid stuff. And so I was really, really excited to be a dad. Um, And I actually preached from stage um, right in there. And she was 10 weeks pregnant and I announced it. And at 11 weeks, we uh, found out that there wasn't a heartbeat. Mm. And that was really the moment at 25 or 26 that I just rode everybody off Mm. and kind of turned my back on anybody that cared about me, um, including the Lord, and said, well, none of you know what I'm dealing with. I'm 26 years old. I've had cancer. I've lost the one thing that Mm. I kind of found identity in in life, which was the the possibility of being a father. And so the only way I know to treat this at this point is through this little white pill. And so I just dove headlong into addiction and it it took probably a year before um, the leadership of the church was trying to figure out what to do with me. And if you've been a part of a large organization, that's just a really messy problem Mm -hmm. of we've got this person, we love him, we don't know what's going on with him, but um, let's try to move him and see if that works. And then let's have some conversations and the church, New Spring did everything they could do to help me through that season, but I just wouldn't be honest. Mm. And even when it came out that um, that I was taking a lot of medication, I just blamed the pain and said, there's no way for me to to live a normal life without this. And, and I mean, it's the same, same thing I hear people say all the time. And the, the fact was I wasn't willing to do life mm. without uh, the drug regardless of what the circumstances were, whether there was any pain or not. Uh, I just wasn't willing to do it. And so ultimately they had to release me. Um, and again, just to reiterate, they did that after trying everything they could to help me. And so um, I was fired from the church and went back into financial planning work and had some success really quickly, almost a sort of chip on my shoulder mm-hmm. success, like an I'll show you. Right. Um, tried to kind of control and maintain things as far as the substance abuse went, but that didn't last any time either. Um, and so the, the spiral just kept going down and down and down. I did an intensive outpatient rehab program. Um, in 2009, I went to an inpatient facility with a two-year-old and Jill pregnant, Mm. um, for six weeks. And I'm very grateful for that place because I think it was it was there that I finally realized I wasn't different than all these other people that yeah. I'd been exposed to in the course of trying to get clean. Um, 
but it didn't take even in 2009. I got out and I didn't want to use at that point, um, but I didn't know how to live. And so it didn't take too long, a few months before I relapsed and alcohol was involved because to me, I'd, I'd done the pill thing and I knew I couldn't handle that, but maybe alcohol would take away some of this anxiety I was feeling. Mm. Um, and I could drink, you know, a little bit in the evening. And, and I, I always had this weird mindset of, well, if I can just get rid of the anxiety so I can be a decent husband and dad, which is totally backwards because <laughs> I was a much worse husband and father because of the substance abuse. Mm. But I had somehow convinced myself that the only way to be a decent husband and father was to deal with these emotions that I didn't know how to deal with through the substance. Mm. Um and so I added alcohol in and it very quickly spiraled out of control um, until November of 2011. Um, the last thing I remember is, is not being able to go to sleep and I'd been drinking uh, all day and I would drink in just massive quantities. Mm. It, it, anything I did really to this day, which is why I have to constantly preach self-control to myself, mm. uh, anything I do, I take level 10 very mm. quickly. Um, and it's a great, it's an asset in a lot of different ways. Right. It, it's, it's provided me some opportunities that I would not have had outside of that character trait. Um, but it can also get destructive really, really yeah. quickly. Um, and so, uh, I was drinking a lot of alcohol. I had drunk all day long. And I remember when you drink that much, you never really fall asleep. You just kind of nod off and then come back. And I hope not many of your listeners have experienced mm. that, but for those that have, they'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and I remember thinking if I could just go to sleep, I'd be okay. And I knew that Jill had some anxiety medicine that with alcohol would, would put me to sleep. And the last thing I remember is taking two. And the next morning, the bottle of 60 was gone and I was in wow. the ER. So wow. um, it, that absolutely should have killed me. I don't know why it didn't. Um, Jill and my dad got me to the ER. They pumped my stomach, uh, ended up having to strap me down to the bed. I was like violent, which I'm not a, I'm not a violent guy. Mm -hmm. Like I'm pretty laid back and fairly even keeled when it comes to uh, like getting physical and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it all hit the fan then. And when I got out of ICU, Jill was like, Alan, you can't come home. She said, I can't, wow. I can't find you dead or have one of the boys find you dead. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? And she said, I don't know. I don't know what it means, but you can't come home. Wow. And, um, that was the moment when everything began to change. And I didn't mm -hmm. know it at the time. At the time it was like, well, I guess I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. But, um, that was the beginning of the last eight and a half years, which have been really almost exclusively up into the right and just, wow a blessing from the Lord after blessing from the Lord after bless. It's just been staggering. So wow. Um, wow. I was intentional. Usually the really ugly part of my story takes much longer than that, but I was like, I'm not going to be negative on Davey's podcast. So <laughs> there you go. I fast tracked that stuff. Well, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to dive into the weeds a little bit on yeah. the front end of the story before we kind of talk about this up and to the right you know, uh, last eight and a half years that you've been experiencing, because absolutely, I want to make sure that everyone hears kind of the hope journey that takes place. But now looking back on it, I'm sure you have some insight 
onto the downward spiral as well. Yeah. You're able to look back, you know, sober-mindedly and go, wait a minute. Okay. Here's kind of how I got to this place and what took place here and why, you know, why I was trying to treat these things with this. And, and I, you know, I, I see this, um, I noticed you said earlier that it started with physical pain, but yeah. ultimately what began kind of the major downward spiral even early on was treating emotional pain. Yeah. And having some emotions that you didn't know how to deal with. Can you unpack that a little bit more and maybe offer to us um, how you how you used to, obviously you would deal with those emotions you know, with coping mechanisms of, uh, you know, medication, alcohol, and, you know, substance abuse, but how now that those emotions uh, are approached differently? Can you kind yeah. of juxtapose those two, unpack yeah, them a little bit? That's a great, that's a great question. And um, yeah, to, to begin with things that I look back on, the, the first and one of the most glaring is I had no context for for seeing myself as someone that was susceptible to alcoholism or addiction. Like mm. uh, my dad's a physician. Um, we lived in nice houses. We had very, uh, we had friends that, you know, wore blazers and sat up straight at dinner. Mm. Um, we, I saw addicts and alcoholics as people under the bridge. Um, mm. They usually had like a brown bag of some sort. Um, they used needles. Um, and so, frankly, I was in it before I realized that an addict and an alcoholic's dealer could be could wear a white coat. Mm. And I don't say that in any way to demonize doctors. They're doing what they're doing. I took advantage of the system. Like that, it's entirely on me. But I made them my drug dealers. Like that. Mm. That was that was what I did um, through dishonest behavior. And so. Um, not having a context through which I was able to see myself as potentially an addict or an alcoholic was a big part of, of the early um, issue. Uh, as far as it relates to emotions, uh, there's one primary thing that I have learned that I continue to struggle with in other contexts, and that is that I like to control situations, mm. whether they are how I feel or they are circumstances or outcomes. I like to feel in control. Um, I have, I'm a good manipulator. And so mm -hmm. generally I'm able to massage things to suit my desires. And um, when I can't control the situation, I get uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. uh, whether that is cancer or the loss of a friend or a situation that I deal with now with work or with Jill, um, the loss of control, proof that I'm not in control, and, and frankly, rarely am I in control. I mean, if I'm being right. honest with myself, right. but proof that I'm not in control when something goes uh, inconsistently with my liking. Yeah. That evidence of how little I actually control makes me feel, as my, as my crew would say, some type of way. And mm. so when I feel some type of way, I want to act out. And usually that is, um, that is, well, it's rare now, frankly, that it's to use drugs or alcohol to cope with it. Mm. But usually it's just a restlessness yeah. that begins to creep up inside of me. And, and I can get angry uh, and not really lash out, but just kind of carry it around. Right. Um, and so, 
yeah, that that was something that I learned early on. Mm. Treating the emotional pain. Uh, I'm I'm a very typical guy in that. Right. Until I was probably 34, 35, I was not going to talk to you about how I felt. Um, that was for mm. weaker guys. I was not them. Um, if anything, I was just going to stuff it down and keep going mm. because that's where we needed to go, and I was going to help us get there. And so we would deal with that stuff later. Um, kind of a consistent. Uh, mentality to the person today that'll that'll overwork and say yeah. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Uh, mm. I'll deal with the emotional stuff when I'm old. Was my my mentality. Mm. And you, I mean, have now obviously recognized how dangerous that is. How you know devastating it can be not only for you but also for your family. Yeah. If you were sitting across the table from somebody who that's their mentality, what would you tell them? Yeah, I think that. Um, the first thing I would tell them if they were beginning to suffer the consequences of those types of decisions, whether it's whether it's substance abuse related or not, for, for most of the men I talk to today, it's more about control than like substance abuse. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. men, it's successful men who are seeking uh, affirmation from their work. Mm. And so they're charging along. Uh, not willing to address the fact that they live with a constant fear that they're going to be proved not enough. Mm. And so they're just rolling along and they're beginning to experience a little bit of pain, but they don't want to deal with it. And the thing I tell those folks or the using addict is, hey, I know from experience that pain is a good teacher and there's mm. as much of it out there as That's you good. want. So you're welcome to go take another dose of it or we can begin to look at this a different way. And I can't make you do that. I can't make anyone do that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that early in recovery, everybody has to walk through because when you're a month or two clean, three months clean, and you begin to learn a little bit, you believe in yourself a little bit, and you learn a little bit about how to go about not using drugs one day at a time, yeah. you want to give it to everybody else because you're like, oh my gosh, I finally feel like a human being again. Yeah. Um, and so you're like, I'm going to go out and, and get this person and help them get clean and, and mm. straighten up and, and become an acceptable, responsible, and productive member of society. And you take a couple of shots where you realize you can't do that either. Mm. So you just, yeah. just realize that you take care of your side of the street and help when someone invites you to and let the chips fall where they may yeah. when it comes to that. Wow. Addiction has a way of taking over your life and the lives of those you love. Like Alan, it is easy for all of us to get stuck in a downward spiral without an end in sight. Whether you are personally battling an addiction or working through other types of pain, we at Nothing Is Wasted believe that Christian counseling is an essential part of your healing journey. Christy and I have decided in the wake of COVID-19 to try another type of counseling that doesn't involve in-person meetings. So we've partnered with an incredible online worldwide organization who is sponsoring the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. This organization is called Faithful Counseling. They provide virtual counseling with licensed therapists who are certified by their state's board to provide therapy and counseling. Faithful Counseling is designed as a solution for people seeking traditional mental health counseling but would prefer a Christian perspective. If you're seeking a mental health professional who is a practicing Christian, faithful counseling may be a great option for you. Once you are matched with a counselor, in 24 hours or less, you can connect with them anytime via your computer, tablet, or mobile phone. Through video calls, phone calls, 
or even text messaging. They also have weekly Groupinar sessions where members can learn in a group environment with a counselor about various topics that we all face. Just to clarify, Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line, but it can be an incredible resource during your healing journey. Faithful Counseling costs $65 per week and financial aid is available to those who qualify. You can apply for that during the sign-up process. So to learn more, go to faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. If you sign up through that link only, you will receive 10% off your first month of counseling for being a part of the Nothing is Wasted family. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. And now back to my conversation with Alan. I'm, I'm curious, Alan, you know, control, that's a huge thing for men just wanting to feel like they have everything within their grips, within their grasp, that, that they, you know, at least feel uh, confident in whatever space they're in and that things aren't taking them by surprise or not meeting up to their expectations. So 100%, that's exactly what I feel like many men especially, but many women as well experience and why they would slip into um, trying to cope with feeling out of control. How have you now, uh, how do you get, let me ask you this way. How do you get comfortable with being out of control? You know, mm. cause you said earlier that you were really uncomfortable anytime that something was out of your control or didn't get live up to your expectations. So like, what does it look like now to get comfortable with that? Like what has been the paradigm shift, you know, um, and we might be kind of fast forwarding quite a bit, but I'm just really curious as to, I love kind of camping right there on yeah, wrestling with these emotions, you know? I, I think that for me, the lesson that I learned early in recovery that, it, that served me then and continues to serve me more than anything else was a realization that I was going to stay sick until I became fully willing to be honest, mm. to- totally honest. And, um, you know, one of the things that the group that I would meet with early in recovery would talk about is uh, there are three landing spots for a life lived in addiction, jails, institutions, and death. And um, I should have gone to jail a hundred different times, somehow didn't, um, had been to multiple institutions, inpatient rehabs and outpatient rehabs. Um, and so for me, the next one was death and I didn't want to die and I was scared. And so, uh, I had a guy early in recovery who just began to challenge me to get honest. And I was so desperate. We talk a lot about the gift of desperation. Mm. I, I, the Lord was so gracious to give me this complete desperation, like a recognition that I was totally unable to do it. Wow. I had tried every way I knew and failed miserably. And I went to this guy in this group and was like, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Mm. And he, he could have told me to run around the building and bark like a dog and I would have done it. Um, but what he said was, you just need to get honest and you need to start mm. talking about uh, what you're feeling uh, without trying to teach anyone. Because I'd always been the teacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, even mm-hmm. at 23, 24, working at the church, I guess it was 24, um, I was hired in as Mm. the guy that was going to teach, be the discipleship guy. And so way before my character had caught up to the role, um, I was given the reins of of teaching. Um, And 
like I needed to become willing to listen and to be mm-hmm. taught. And the, the thing he told me to do was be honest. And so I began to get honest and started talking about some things that I never, I mean, I had a lot of suicidal thoughts back then, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when I was wondering if, if I would ever um, get my family back because Jill and mm-hmm. I were separated for two and a half months. And uh, that's a, that's a crazy part of the story, the way the Lord worked that out. But for that two and a half months, um, there were several times where I struggled with if I don't have her. And I mean, at the time, she could have easily said, you're not going to see the boys. And any judge with any sense would have said, yep, yeah. that makes sense. Um, and I had to struggle through whether or not I wanted to live and telling some people that I was having that thought was a massive admission for yeah, me. Yeah. And so some healing began to take place through me getting honest. And I availed myself to some decent counsel mm-hmm. because if you're not telling people the truth, your only counselor is yourself. And mm-hmm. at least for me, I'm in bad company when I'm alone. Like that's just yeah. not a win. Most of us, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about how this affected your family. You just mentioned it's a crazy part of the story, how God worked all this out. yeah. T- tell me about that two and a half months that you guys so were separated Jill, and what happened. J- Jill was phenomenal through it all. And she would say she made mistakes, but, but any mistake that she made was sort of forced by me. We, you know, we tried at the beginning, you always want to keep it quiet. You're embarrassed by what's yeah, going on right. and you don't, we didn't know anything about oh, it. Well, especially in the context you're in, in church world, right? Yeah, like ch- church world, I mean, yeah. uh, very privileged family. Yeah. Um, just didn't know how to talk about it. And yeah. so weren't going to tell anybody, uh, wanted to keep folks from knowing, keep opportunities out there available for, mm. for when I got over this, you know. Um, and so we had, we had made some mistakes there, but eventually she got to a point where she was like, listen, I'm not covering for him. Um, mm. And that was probably between 2009-10 and then when everything hit the fan in 2011. But 2011... I land in the hospital. She tells me, you can't come home. Um, And so I live out of the house for two and a half months. I get a terrible job. um, But that came on the heels of three guys that I'd been in home group with came to see me. And uh, I vividly remember one of them says, you need to take a walk. And I was like, Jay, it's like 25 degrees outside. And he was like, well, you need to be cold. And that's what I needed at that time. Like the other two guys were kind of patting me on the back and he was just straight to it. Um, And I took a walk that night and was talking to God and didn't really know if I even believed in him. And I was like, I I just need you to tell me what to do. And as clearly as I've ever heard anything, I heard God say, get a job. And so I started Mm. old addict behavior kicked in. Who do I know? How can I manipulate the situation? And it became just vividly clear that I didn't need to pull strings or lean into relationships. I needed to just beat the streets and get a job. Mm. And so um, that's what I did. I drove up and down Main Street in Anderson and 28 Bypass and just handed out resumes everywhere. Bojangles, Walmart, anywhere that would take a resume. I gave one. Um, and uh, got a job. It was awful. It is the worst job to this day that I've ever had. But <laughs> I was sitting about four feet from this guy who had started coming to New Springs six months earlier and was beginning to put his life back together. He'd been drinking too much and neglecting his wife. 
Mm. And so I just kind of listened into his conversation for the month that I was there in January. And then January the 31st, I was going from a recovery meeting uh, at lunch back to work. And this 74 year old pulled out in front of me and totaled both cars and Mm. I broke my leg uh, and they had to put two plates and 13 pins in it. Um, and I refused painkillers all the way until I went to shock in the MRI tube and they pulled me out. And when I came to that evening, I could tell that I was high. Mm-hmm. And at the time I thought the wreck didn't kill me, but these drugs are going to kill me. I can't do it again. There's mm-hmm. no way I'm going to be able to do it again. And I remember talking to my sponsor. Sponsor's a guy who works a recovery program as well and kind of mentors people who have less clean time than he does. I talked to my sponsor that night and he said, why don't you just take care of what you need to do today and we'll we'll deal with tomorrow when it gets here. Hmm. And man, I, I'd had that verse quoted at me a thousand different times. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, it seemed feasible at the time that if I just did what the doctor said today and then did it again tomorrow, Mm. that eventually the doctors would say, you need to not take this medication anymore. And I would be able to say, okay. Okay. Mm. And I had done it. I had done it two and a half months prior, not thinking it was possible. Um, And so that's what I did. And so I I had this massive surgery. I was on painkillers for five weeks, and then it came time to put them down. And it was hard. I mean, physically, Mm. it was really unpleasant. But um, it happened, and I went from the hospital back to my home with Jill. Mm. And so during that time, Jill began to see me deal with the pain and the medication and just life in a Mm. totally different way Um, because – in two and a half months, I'd switched from this guy who needed everyone to have this perception that I had it all together to a guy who was willing to go, I don't know what to do. Someone please help me. Mm. And that willingness to ask for help and receive help and um, go to people and trust them to, to, to help me make decisions when I didn't feel equipped to make them on my own, it, yeah. it I think, really softened her heart um, to me. And so, uh, April of that year of 2012, um, our third son was born. We call him our redemption baby. I was telling you before we started Mm -hmm. recording that, uh, he's kind of fallen right in from the beginning. He (laughs) slept, he ate, he's done all the, all the right things. Um, I know you're a current seven month old. Our redemption baby is not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not trying to rub it in. But to each um, his own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, we had our third. Uh, I had gotten off crutches the week prior to his birth. And, you know, just remember being mm-hmm. able to celebrate in the hospital with her, clear headed, you know, seeing some hope, uh, still working a terrible job. But, you know, seeing God put our marriage back together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a while. I mean, I don't want to give anyone who's struggling the the perception that, you know, six months in, everything was fine. I mean, it, it yeah, took right. a long time to regain right. some trust. But, um, you know, that wreck for me was another example. It was kind of like the, the hospital, you know, when I landed there in November. I would never have written our story that way. 
it, mm-hmm. it is the last thing that I would have said would would help to kind of galvanize our family around the idea of trying to make it work. Yeah. Um, but what God did through it was just amazing and such a blessing and such a testament to his faithfulness um, that I there's no way I could take credit for it. I would mm-hmm. have never done it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, still am a little bitter that I had to go through the pain, but needed the pain. A little bit of pain, yeah. frankly, is good for me. Right. And so, you know, today I have a, a tiny bit of pain in my leg every now and then. And mm. it's just a good reminder that, you know what, I get to deal with that in a lot of different ways. Mm. And one of the ways is that I don't take pills to deal with it. And, wow. you know, narcotics aren't an option. And, and that's OK. Like, I'm not yeah. entitled to a pain free life and neither are you. And that's mm. OK. So. Wow. Wow. That's so true. I mean, you're walking around now uh, with with a limp. But it's exactly the way that I think the the Lord uh, would prefer most of us walking around because otherwise you tend to walk around with a swagger, right? Mm, yeah. You think that you're you're the one that makes it all happen. You're the one that deserves the credit. You're the one that's controlling your your universe and your um, future. And and when we get a limp, when we get a little bit of pain, you know, like Jacob, right? You know, this wrestling with God and he breaks his hip. I'm sure Jacob walked around the rest of his life with a little bit of a limp to remind him that you know, really God's the one that, um, he's the one that that's in control of all of this. Yeah. And, uh, and just the illusion, you know, me trying to garner my own control is just a, a, an absolute fallacy and illusion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, I can still default to that old way of thinking and have to be careful not to regress, um, mm. and feel like, oh, well, I have been through my struggle and it's been redeemed and so now I am somehow above that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because for me now, uh, we have a class that I love at our church called Connect. And I, I love to teach the freedom portion of the content because obviously uh, drugs are an enslaving sin, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I tell people a drug addict knows more what Romans 6 is talking about when it talks about being a slave to sin than Mm. anybody else you could talk to. But at the same time, I can default to this way of thinking that says, well, if I could just get my circumstances in line, if I could just check these boxes, Mm. then I'd be able to live at peace. And the illusion there is that my peace is contingent upon my circumstances. Mm, And so just like I was giving the drugs the control of how I felt, now my default is much more likely to be, well, let me give my circumstances control Mm. of how I feel when both can be equally destructive. Um, And so really the, the drug use and the freedom from drug and alcohol use helps to inform my perspective on control today. Mm. Isn't it interesting that like, you know, we talk about this like freedom and recovery and, but the reality is just like what you articulated, the, some of this, some of the same propensities or temptations to slip into those same old mindsets are still there. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, but the thing that's different is you now have tools to know how to, to deal with them. Right. Yeah. Like that, it's like that in and of itself is the breakthrough uh, is, you know, the, the shackles are still there, but now you have the key. Yeah. That's, that's great language to put around it. That's one of the huge benefits of, 
of having lived through addiction and survived it um, mm. is that I, I have the 12 st- steps is kind of at the core of any recovery program early mm-hmm. on. So right. um, you admit that life is unmanageable. You come to believe that God can restore you. And then you, you go through this process of restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and through those, I have seen scripture really open up and come alive because uh, they're all rooted in scripture, yeah, which right. is really crazy. Right. Um, and one of the gifts I had was uh, I had had two parents who taught me the word. I was raised in church. And so it was really easy for me to make the connection between this idea of surrendering and becoming what God wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was given these very simple tools early in recovery that I was able to connect to spiritual mm. principles. Yeah. Um, and so being honest was an early one. And my sponsor, again, was the one that taught me that. And the way he taught it to me was uh, I told him something. He said, that's not true. And I said, what do you mean that's not true? And he's <laughs> like, that's not true. I don't even remember what it was. But I mean, he was right. I was trying to make myself look a certain way. It was probably, if I if I remember, it was probably an excuse for why I was late or something like that. Mm. That was close to true, but just not entirely true. But what yeah. I wanted to what I wanted to communicate was something really big prevented me from being here. When in in truth, I had just chosen to give my time to something other than what I had committed mm. it to. So it's probably something like that. And he said, "You want me to tell you how to how to get out of that?" Once I finally admitted that he was right, I said, "Yeah." He said, the next time you find yourself do that, just bending the truth a little bit, he said, look at the person you're doing it with and tell them, I apologize. That was not true. This is the truth. And then just Mm -hmm. tell them and then ask them if they'll forgive you. And I had to do that twice and it broke me of it. Wow. Because you won't do that if you know that on the other end of it, you're going to have to look at the person and go, I just lied to you. Will you please forgive me? And so that simple wow. practice in, and not, not everything happened that quickly, but I was so averse to the humiliation that came from that because I had such mm. a big ego. I was like this egomaniac mm. with low self-esteem. Um, and mm. so I didn't want to do that. And so I, I picked up tools like that. I picked up tools like um, prayer, but not prayer that I'd grown up with but a desperate prayer of like, Mm. God, if you don't do this for me today, I'm not going to make it. Mm. I'm not going to be able to do this without you intervening. Um, Meditation was a good one for me early on. A gratitude list at the end of the day, just writing five things down that I was grateful for. Mm. Um, Because what that taught me in really early recovery was that even when I didn't have my family, I was effectively homeless. Um, that I could find things to be grateful for. And Mm. that taught me that it was much more about what my perspective was focused on than the circumstances themselves. Yeah. And I have to remind myself of that one pretty regularly because um, I've got a pretty idyllic life today. So Mm. when I find myself complaining about something, it's entirely about what my focus is on rather than what the circumstances really are. Mm. Um, and I'm just focused on the wrong thing. I'm focused on what I'm being asked to do without rather than all that I've been given. Mm. And so the Lord will just really gently just turn my head. Mm. If I make a gratitude list and he'll say, you, you need to stop worrying about this that you think you're without 
and look at all this over here that you're that's so good blessed with so that's so lots good. That's of such a small simple thing yeah i mean it's a simple technique a gratitude list you know many of us have heard that over and over and over but it works yeah you know philippians 4 8 it's like what you focus on yeah that's what you're gonna find you gotta focus on those things that are you know, every, any, if anything is, is good and true and noble and praiseworthy and think about such things, yep. right? Yep. That's so good. You said earlier that there were a couple stints, uh, maybe, I, maybe I misheard, but there were a couple stints in rehab that you, I think you said, quote unquote, like they didn't take, yep. which I think is many people's experience. Yeah. And you may have already articulated the, the thing that changed that, that last time around. But I was I was curious if there was anything else. I you know I know you said honesty, like being completely honest. That was a major turning point for you, learning how to completely be honest with yourself and with other people. But was is there any other th- things like any other reasons why those two times didn't take, but but like this final last uh, you know stint in November, all of a sudden that became the the time that really turned things up? Yeah, a couple of points I'll make uh, with respect to that question are the last time there was no rehab. There was no, Mm. you know, counseling. There was no money for any of that. I mean, it Mm. was, I went to a daily meeting uh, in the absolute worst part of Anderson with folks that you wouldn't have looked at and said, oh, those are experts in the field. They will help him. But man, they were the experts in the field and they helped Hmm. me. So um, the first thing that I had to do was I had to admit that I was an addict and an alcoholic. Like I, Hmm. I had to get to the point where I was convinced that I am going to react differently to that substance than 90% of the population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of, and I don't know, you talked about having some experts on your show as it relates to addiction. There's a lot of debate out there about the disease model and addiction being a disease. And I don't Mm -hmm. ever, I don't ever get into those uh, phrase, but what I do know is that some people react differently to opiates and alcohol mm-hmm. and stimulants and benzodiazepines than others. It's just, yeah. it, it's, it's obvious. Mm. If I look at my own family, opiates make my mom sick. They make Jill feel pretty good, but she's never risked any sort of control over it. None of that. And they make me feel like I'm Superman and I take mm-hmm. 12 instead of two. So yeah. like you've got well, it even a, goes back to your first experience with it. You were right. talking about earlier, you so, it's so visceral reaction to it. Yeah. Some people just react differently to drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol than, than others do. And so I had to admit that I was different and I didn't want to be different. Like none of mm-hmm. us want to be told particularly, I mean, we all want to be told we're different if it's a win, right? Like if it's something, yeah. Oh, you're naturally 40% stronger than everyone else. Yeah. But uh, if it's perceived as a weakness, we don't want to, we don't want to have to own that. And so admitting that was on the very front end. And that's what I was alluding to when I talked about in 2009, going to rehab, it didn't take, but what it did do was it convinced me that I am, I am a drug addict and mm. something is wired differently in me where when I put an opiate in, uh, my body responds differently than the average person and particularly my mind, like my psyche, mm. something and something changes 
so that cravings are induced. And um, so coming to terms with the fact that I really was uh, an addict and an alcoholic and that something supernatural needed to happen um, in order to help me address that, that was a big change. Um, Becoming willing to take some suggestions. I had I had always been one of the smarter kids in the class. And so um, probably from 2009 to 2011, I thought I was going to read my way, study my way out of it. Like if mm. I can learn enough about addiction, I can outsmart this thing. Mm. Um, and learning that uh, there's a phrase that 12-step groups use that the program, uh, nobody is uh, too stupid for the program, but there are people that are too mm. smart for it. Um, <laughs> and I was wow. right on the edge of being that guy that was just too too smart for it um, because I knew all, I mean, I knew what happened in the brain and the neurotransmitters and what was affected by what substance and what damage I had likely done to my brain and my kidneys and all that. Um, the problem was even knowing all that information I still couldn't resist the bottle of 30 pills on the Mm. table. Like I still was going to take more than I was supposed to more often than I was supposed to. And I just, my behavior wasn't changing. So, Mm. um, those two things, getting honest and admitting that I really am, that that's something is different and I've got to treat the differences. Um, yeah. And so the practical way that the treatment um, plan worked for me was began with just showing up with a group of people who had this a similar problem and were willing to help one another every day. And yeah. that's that's what I did beginning in probably late November of 2011. And I didn't miss a day until the car accident. And mm. my mom if you knew my mom, it'd really be funny. My mom, who's a very proper woman, drove me down to, I don't know how familiar you are with Anderson. I know you're semi-familiar with it, but Mm -hmm. Wes Whitner and Market Mm. (laughs) behind the Salvation Army. And my my mommy drove me to a meeting and dropped me (laughs) off at, you know, a week out of surgery from the car accident. Because I told her, I said, if these things get a hold of me again, I'm going to die. Yeah, And this is the thing that helps. And she, God bless her, was humble enough and servant-hearted enough to drive me down there and sit and wait until I (laughs) limped out. (laughs) And man, Puff, who's about 350, hugged me and told me it was going to be okay. And you just keep coming back. And kindest people I've ever been around. Wow. Puff's in Miami right now. If he somehow hears this, I hope he's doing well. <laughs> Puff, I hope you're listening to the Nothing's yeah, Listen podcast. Yeah, I'm going to call him. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, talk to me a little bit about, I mean, I know it's hard to probably put into summary kind of the eight and a half years of recovery, but what are some major breakthrough moments that you can recall over these eight and a half years? You described it as, you know, everything seems to be like up and to the right yeah. for all intents and purposes. But So probably the the earliest breakthrough moment was the car accident moving back home. Uh, Jill and I went to a marriage conference in March of that year. So that was four months after everything had gone down and began to have some conversations that, that started to um, heal our marriage a little bit. Mm. Um, it took, I would say, probably two and a half years before she would have said she trusted me again. I remember I was probably 18 months, two years sober, clean. Mm. And she found a vodka bottle in our front yard um, 
and lost it. Yeah. And I was like, and I was working six days a week, probably 12 hours a day, just, just getting after it. Um, going to meetings when I could felt like I was doing all the right things. And yeah. I got home, she just tore into me and I was like, what, what are you talking? What else do I need to do? Yeah. Here? But I had conditioned her to respond. It was entirely right. my fault. Right. And so like, that was a pretty, that was a pretty formative conversation for us because I, I had to, I had to own the fact that that wasn't on her. That was on me. Mm. Um, that's so, man, that's so good because it's so easy for us to think that despite, you know, track records, that are untrustworthy behavior, you know, despite all of those things that somehow if we begin doing the right things for a little st- season, we should all of a sudden, it should make up for all the untrustworthy. Absolutely. Behavior, you know? Well, the, a guy, there's a doctor in town who, uh, drank too much for a little while and, um, got sober and his line was always, well, I drank for eight and a half years. So I had to give her eight and a half years to forgive me. And I think that's probably a pretty reasonable way to, to look at something like what we struggle with. And, Mm. um, there were, there were years of Jill having to live through, this is the last time. And so I, I conditioned her to that. And so, um, that was a, that was a fairly important moment. Um, I resigned from the terrible job. I, I declined a pretty big promotion that would have been a lot of money. And right after declining the promotion, resigned from the role. Um, and she backed me on that. She, mm. she said, I know you want to see the boys more. We need you around here more. So that was pretty, that was pretty formative. Yeah. Um, probably about three or four years ago, I began, so I came back on staff. I don't even know that we hit all that. Church fires me. Yeah, right. I get the terrible job. Then I go to work at a children's home, uh, which was a great job, but you ju- I just couldn't pay the bills doing yeah, it. Right. Um, and so I was actually in the process of looking at getting back into some financial planning work, doing that sort of thing. And I got a call from the church. This would have been four and a half years ago. And, um, they hired me back in uh, at the very bottom of the org chart. Um, mm. So first time on staff was Alan. We want you to come in and be on lead team, all this stuff. And coming back at the time, it was called a project team leader, which was mm-hmm. the very, if you know our culture, the, it doesn't yep. exist anymore. It's the very <laughs> lowest rung of the ladder. And uh, that was kind of a confirmation for me because it was like, that seems about right. Like that's, mm. that's what my ego needs to have communicated wow. to it is that you come in and say yes to what the Lord asks you to do and don't worry Mm. about the ancillary things because he'll take care of that. Um, And so I took that position uh, four and a half years ago and my job's changed multiple times, um, but have just loved being back and hope that I've been here with a totally different posture this time, Mm. um, knowing that I can still default right back into that old behavior really quickly, but hoping that I catch it fairly quickly. And um, about a year after I came back, um, there'd been a meeting that had been held at the church for a while uh, related to recovery that had just kind of been stagnant for a while. And so I, I tried to plug into it. Um, and about the time I started to plug into it, the guy that 
that had been holding it decided to that he wasn't going to do it anymore and i just felt like the lord was like you need to you need to start something mm. so we started a meeting at the church and three of my guys were going to come and that night none of them showed up and this one jaundiced bloated guy came in and he says this recovery meeting and i was like yep I was like, the other guy should be here soon. None of them came, and he just cried for an hour. And if you know oh. me, I don't do well with tears. Like, I just don't <laughs> know how. I don't. I don't. I don't like. There's nothing malicious towards you if you're a crier. I just don't know how to deal with it. I'm like, <laughs> you, you're. I know you have <laughs> listeners, not viewers, but I just like feel like I should pat them on the head or something. I don't know what to do. So um, I listened to him and told him, "Hey, if you don't have a drink this week and you come back next week, it'll get better." And he did, and then he came back the third week, and then week four, there was another guy that came. And just over the course of time, we would add a person here or there. Um, but I was getting to the point about a year in where I was like, this, this is just not what this is supposed to be. Hmm. And then a year in, it just started exploding and we did a Thanksgiving dinner uh, last November, which was right around my eight-year mark, which was really cool to be able to kind of see those two mm. things dovetail. And we had 55 people come to it, wow. um, every one of them in recovery. Uh, it was filled with life and levity and joy and faith and family. I mean, it was like mm. family. And it's a group that when I look around the room, I would never think this is my family, <laughs> but they are absolutely my family. And I wow. could call any one of them and they do anything in the world for me right now. Um, and so that's been an awesome thing to watch. Uh, my current role at the church is, although the title's different, it's effectively the same position that I was mm. hired in to do at New Spring, which is very cool how the Lord has redeemed wow. that. Yeah. Um, Jill's good. My boys are amazing our family, like we genuinely love each other. I know we have mm. to say that as pastors, right? Like <laughs> I love my family, but like we, like it's five eleven right now as we record this. I can't yeah. wait to go home you're and like, see them. You're like, why did you book us so <laughs> late, baby? Why? why <laughs> I didn't this? think that at all. But tomorrow's <laughs> Friday and I have, I, my middle yes. son's birthday is here and um, we're going to have fun and hang out. It is just going to be fun. And yeah. Um, so life is just good today. Uh, a lot of things that I used to think were really, really important aren't important at all today. And a lot mm. of things that should have been important all along genuinely are important mm. now. And so the Lord has just been faithful to teach me all of that. My, my college roommate and I were talking the other day. His name's Jay Hatton. He is the friend that stuck it out with me through the whole thing. Wow. And we were just talking about how amazing the Lord is to come through in circumstances that you've basically dug your own grave. Hmm. I mean, and really that's all of our stories, right? We yeah, all are right. dead Absolutely. in our transgressions yep. and God is just faithful. But when one of the blessings of being in recovery is that you it is so easy for me to see how dead I was in my transgressions. Mm. That's not a challenge. And I think one of the hard things, Jill and I talk about this some because she, my wife is like perfect. It's kind of odd. <laughs> like she, the whole way through, super straight laced, never had a drink, never smoked a cigarette, none um, of that. 
And um, I think that it's probably hard for her sometimes to see the need that she has for the Lord Mm -hmm. because her life has been so orderly. But when you've induced this mass of chaos and the Lord's like plucked you out of it, mm-hmm. it's really easy to recognize how desperate you are for Him to show up every day. Because if He doesn't, I know the mess I can make of it. And so that's, that's a great. gift that that believers in recovery have that you know the average person might have to work harder to, to recognize. Yeah. And so I'm really grateful for that. That's so cool. Well, one of the major themes that I hear as I'm listening to you tell your story is, you know, to provide some hope for some people who are listening right now yeah. and may not see the end in sight is this like one day at a time idea. Yeah. You know, this, you said it earlier that, oh yeah, I knew that verse. I knew the verse of like, worry about today because yep. tomorrow's got enough worries for itself. Just, can you do it today? God's got grace for you today. And then, you know, even, um, even just as I, I heard you kind of sh- on the other side of the table, sharing with, uh, you know, this guy who came into the recovery group and you just said, can you come back next week? Can you like worry about one day at a time? Here we go. And I would just say that's, I mean, that encourages me that no matter where we find ourselves, we can just say, Hey, God's going to meet me here today. If I just look at the, I don't have to look at a year down the road. I don't have to look right. at five years down there. I don't have to feel, you know, think about how am I going to cope with this chaos for the next five years, next 10 years, I just got to worry about today. Yes, we plan for the future, and yes, yes, we we prepare, but we don't give our serenity over to it. That that mm. young man that showed up to the meeting, he leads the meeting today. He's wow. he's the one that's starting the new stuff and leading the Sunday night group, and he's the reason fifty five people came to the Thanksgiving dinner because wow. they didn't know me. But if I had told him, hey. I need some help with this thing and I need you to shoulder. That's, that's too much for him to carry day yeah. one. Mm-hmm. What he needed to know was, Hey, don't, don't drink today. Mm-hmm. And that, that was his starting point. And so um, I think just for today, uh, that's kind of a central tenet of like Navy SEAL training. It's one reason mm-hmm. they do such horrible things to them is that they want to prove to those guys that you can do anything for an hour, mm-hmm. a day, a week, you know, That's why they do hell week. It's like you can do anything for a week. And, um, you know, you kind of learn that. And uh, the late stages of addiction will will give you the suffering to do that. And then the early stages of recovery when you're going through the withdrawals, if you can make it through those. And that's an encouraging thing. You may have somebody Mm -hmm. who's in it and they're like, I just can't get through the withdrawals. I promise you can like I, I have experienced the worst of it. I have watched people go through the worst of it. And um, you can you may have to have some medical assistance, but you can go through it and come out the other side and then live a, a life that is different because I have watched people at the end mm. turn around and, and go through it. Josh, the guy that's leading the group now, liver failure, looked awful. I mean, I came home and told Jill, well, one guy showed up and he's probably going to die because he looks wow. like he's knocking on death's door. Wow. Um, and so that, that would be my encouragement. I mean, my story, I, it is a miracle. A liter of vodka and 60 Xanax should kill you. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. that doesn't kill you, but it didn't. <laughs> And I came out the other side and the Lord has been faithful for eight and a half yep. years. And there's not anybody that is exempt 
from yeah. his pro- this excluded from his promises. Right. Um, so right. That's why. Well, I you said it earlier, this. Alan. You said I don't know how that didn't kill me, and I wanted to say in that moment, um, I do. <laughs> I know why it did. Yeah. It's because the Lord had His hand on you because He you, because of what we just heard. Yeah, what our listeners just got to hear this testimony of of how good God has been in your life, and and now you're able to share that and pay it forward and and help um, partner with the Lord and snatching so many other people out of that same place that you were in. And so, dude, I I so uh, just you know admire your um, your story and um, your heart and what you're applying yourself to now to help others in that. I appreciate the time that you've spent with us sharing it. And I know it's provided so much hope to so many people. And so thank you, man. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. That was an incredible conversation with Amazing. Alan Cothran, which by the way, Alan is a really good friend of and works very closely with Chris Dew whom you guys are very familiar with. We've had him on the podcast before. He is actually yeah. featured in our bonus episode this month. We had Chris back on. Uh, you've probably already heard about that. If you haven't, you need to go and listen to his, uh, you need to go and listen to the actual original conversation I had with Chris do episode 30 of the nothing is wasted podcast, but also you can go to nothing is wasted.com slash partners and you can make a tax deductible recurring donation of $20 a month or more, and you can access all of our partner content. You can listen to the bonus episode that we have with Chris Dew. They work very closely together to help the recovering community uh, down in South Carolina uh, under the umbrella of New Spring Church. Incredible, incredible ministry that they're doing together. I love that. That's such an awesome ministry. I feel like a lot more churches need to do things like that. That's so cool. This interview with Alan meant a lot to me personally. I thought it was so powerful. Mm. And listeners, if it meant a lot to you, go find us on iTunes and do a review because we would love to hear from you and hear yeah. what things are connecting with you. I actually want to read a really powerful review that we have from Jamie in T-Town. Jamie says this, I have just started listening. I just finished 2017. Wow. Mm. This has been so encouraging. I am literally still in the parking lot of a Seattle hospital. I just found out my brain tumor shrunk. My whole journey has been one of Jesus being wildly faithful in the chaos. I relate so much to many of the stories shared. I have a lot of stories of finding joy in the grief. Thanks for the podcast. That is amen to that. That's powerful stuff. Wow. Well, Jamie, we're going to continue to pray that um, your brain tumor continues to shrink in it and it's gone. That's what we're going to pray for, Jesus. We pray yes, we are. Amen. that you would heal Jamie completely. In we know Jesus you can. Name. We yep. know that you have all throughout history. And so we pray that you would yep. do that. Wow. Amen. 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 If you want to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. If you want to follow Davey, he is at Davey Blackburn. And you can find me at Obsamp, A U B S A M P. Yep. We also want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for this episode and all the episodes. And uh, Aubrey, next week we are concluding this addiction series. We wow. have uh, an interview, a really great interview with um, Michelle and Corey Joy. And uh, I'm gonna tell you, it is this one was um, this one was very raw, very real, yeah. very yeah. very fresh. But it's gonna bring you a lot of hope. A lot of hope just to hear their faith and resilience. So why don't you listen to this little clip from my conversation with Michelle and Corey Joy.
we got up and I always looked to see if his boots were there. Mm. I would look over and at the entry and see, and I always was like really glad when his boots weren't there and he was at work. And so <laughs> I saw that his boots were there and I thought, well, that's strange. Cause you know, I thought he was going to go paint. And so I went, um, in and I, I have pounded on the door and no response. And I went in and I said to him to Corey and Corey's like, Oh, he's a heavy sleeper. I'm sure everything's fine. But I got anxious. Mm. So as I'm getting ready, I would like knock on his door and then keep getting ready. And I just was like trembling inside. And so and he, and he, he always was a heavy sleeper. Yeah. yeah. I mean, heavy sleeper. So I got down on the floor before I left and that's the other, that's the vision that is very hard to get out of my mind. I got down on the floor and I looked in and um, he had red, um, he had basketball shorts on and no shirt and he had his phone and it was like on him. Mm. And um, I kept like messaging and his phone would go off or call and his phone would go off and no movement. And I, I kept trying to see if he was breathing and I would, I think I imagined that there was movement mm. and, um, but I, I, I couldn't see his face. Thankfully, I just saw his body. And so I, I left and which I know was not the right thing to do, but I, I was losing my mind and I couldn't articulate to him. I think he's dead. 